from the uh, things aren't always as they may appear file comes the following story. After a one mile long chase, a man is pulled over for speeding on a highway in Alabama. The police officer comes to the car and taps on the window. He says, sir, do you know that you are speeding? The gentleman said, yes. He said, may I have your license, please? He said, no, my license is suspended. He said, sir, would you open the glove compartment and hand me the registration for the car, please? He said, I can't do that. The car is stolen and there's a gun in there. He says, uh, do you have a license for the gun? He says, uh, no, but I used it to rob the 7-Eleven and all the money's in the trunk. Police officer pulls out his gun, shouts, don't move, radios for backup. Shortly thereafter, 13 police cars show up, surround the man. Sergeant comes over and asks the man in the car the same questions. He says, sir, may I have your driver's license, please? The man pulls out his license, gives it to the sergeant. He says, is this your car? He goes, yes, it is. He says, can I see the registration? Certainly, officer. Pulls it out and gives it to him. The car's not stolen? Absolutely not. So I suppose there's no gun in the glove compartment and there's no money from a 7-Eleven robbery in the trunk. He said, what? Of course not, sir. He goes, sir, do you realize the officer over there just told me that uh, you were driving a suspended license in a stolen car with an unregistered gun that you used to rob a 7-Eleven and the money's in your trunk? He said, you're kidding me. And the next thing he'll be telling you is that I was speeding. Yeah, credibility, credibility, so hard to find nowadays, you know? Well, speaking of money, <laughs> how's that for a segue? Speaking of money, in our ongoing study of the book of 1 Timothy, we come to a very critical and important passage in the Word of God as it relates to the dangers of loving money. Paul writes to Timothy and to all of us of the dangers of loving money. And from the moment that we are faced with making money, having an income, and learning how to manage it until the day that we die, we face the very serious subject, the very serious subject of the use of money. And according to this passage, it has ruined the lives of many people. The love of money, we're told, is a root of all sorts of evil. And in this passage, Paul warns Timothy to continually warn fellow believers of this truth. So as we look at this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we pick it up at verse 1 where we read these words. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren. But let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these things, shall we be content? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. In these ten verses, we'll look at three major ideas that Paul lays out for Timothy and several principles that are associated with each one of them. First and foremost, Paul lays out uh, the duty that's, that, that is involved, the duty of employees. If you stop and think about it, you know, ours is a society that doesn't place a high value on work. According to one survey, consider that 70% of Americans do not like their jobs. Of the 70%, 90% said they did not feel like getting up in the morning to go to work. The average worker is consumed with leisure and materialism and views a job as a necessary evil to finance those indulgences. You've seen the bumper sticker that I have seen that says, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. 
you know, it's interesting is, you know, even in our own business, when we interview people as we're looking for people on occasions to hire them, you know, the first thing that they ask is, you know, what are the benefits? It's like, you know, you know, here's a 20-year-old guy asking what the retirement plan is. I'm thinking, hey, you know what, you want to know what the work plan is first? It's like, you know, well, how much vacation do we get? What holidays? And what's the retirement package? Hey, I'm thinking, hey, you want to work for a little bit? <laughs> you know, I understand the balance of recognizing that, you know, that's all part of the package. But very rarely do you find somebody going, hey, you know what? How much can I work around here? I can't wait to get to work. And I can't wait to go on vacation. You haven't started yet. You know, you can't be burned out yet, are you? I mean, tired, burned out? Man, I need a vacation. You know, the interview process, it's just unbelievably exhausting. You know, so, you know, unfortunately, some of those unhappy workers are Christians who need to be reminded of their responsibility, you know, as employees. And that's what Paul's addressing here. One cannot talk about the dangers of loving money without discussing the duty of employees. You know, notice in verse 1, he writes, he says, let all who are under the yoke. You know, not, you know there's a cultural thing here. I, I look at that and go, all who are under the yoke and go, man, that sure sounds like a negative thing to me. You know, if you've gone to work and you feel like, man, I'm an ox that's out plowing the field and they got the yoke on my neck and it's like, get, get to it. You know, it sounds like a negative thing. In this particular case, it's not a negative thing. It designates a person who is submission to another who's in authority. It had no negative connotation. And in fact, the whole idea of service can be a very noble designation as it describes many times in Scripture, our Lord serving the Father or believing, believers serving God. The word is both used as a noun and also a verb, and it's used over 150 times in the New Testament as it relates to our responsibility to one another. You know, one of, the, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture uh, relates to a gentleman who was a centurion soldier. And in his conversation with Jesus in this dialogue that took place, it illustrates this whole idea of being a servant and, uh, and submission to authority. But in Matthew 8, 9, the centurion said this to Jesus. He said, for I too am a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does that. And what he said to Jesus was, I recognize that you don't even have to go with me to heal my daughter who is ill. You can just say the word, and it'll take place, because that's the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority of God is that God spoke the universe into existence. And the universe is sustained by the very word of God. What God says goes, and that's the end of the story. And so Jesus, turning to the crowd, said, you know what? In all of Israel, I have never seen such faith as this man has demonstrated. He recognized that, you know what? I don't have to be there to do what I want done. All I need to do is speak the word, and it shall take place. When the centurion went back to his household and relayed what had taken place in his, in his confrontation with Jesus, his servant told him at the very hour that Jesus spoke the word was when your daughter was healed. Man, that's good stuff. And so this whole idea of being under the yoke doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. In fact, it's a very positive thing. And he says, as being slaves, the word doulos or slave is what the centurion was getting across. I am a man who's under authority as I've got people under my authority. And all we need to do is say the word and that authority is enough and they'll act upon it. And see, and that's why as we study the word of God, God's word is very clear that we're to be not only hearers of his word, but doers as well. When God speaks, we should act. All throughout scripture, we find commands of action that we should be doing. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. And as we go through here, we'll find that as it relates to the dangers of loving money, that the action steps that we are to take are not options. They are commands from our, uh, from our senior officer who is commanding us to take action in this area. It's not an option. Any option less than obedience is rebellion. And God says that rebellion is, is the sin of divination, and God hates it. And there was no remedy for divination for those who rebelled were put to death. And so we are to be submissive to authority. And particularly, he says, in the area of let those who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters. It talks about their own master. It implies some form of personal bondage. Um, clearly, these are non-Christian employers. In our day, we would look at it as being employers-employee relationship. And so we look at the duty of employees. What we have here is clear instruction for Christians who work for non-Christian employers. 
How many of you here today, by show of hands, find yourself in a work environment where you as a believer work for a non-Christian, whether directly or indirectly, you work for non-Christians? Okay, as you look around, you'll see that this is very relevant. You know, and I always like people to hesitate to put their hand up. It's like, uh, am I going to get called on? Yes, come on up. Tell us what you do. <laughs> And, and, and how you do it. So we'll, we'll look at this, but, but it has to do with the fact that, you know, if you've ever struggled with what to do as a Christian in a non-Christian environment, then what we're told is very simple, do this, do what? Regard that person or honor that person as one who's in authority. Regard that person, honor that person. Believers to, are, are to regard non-Christian masters or employers as worthy of honor. You know, regard means to, to, you know, take into consideration this person is an authority over your life. It doesn't have anything to do with feelings. You know, so often I hear Christians who work in non-Christian environments say, you know, I hate my boss. That's a feeling. That's emotion. You know what? Who cares? That God doesn't care. What he cares about is that you honor that person, you regard that person, you respect that person. The same word is used as we've gone through the study to honor widows, to honor church leaders, to honor those in authority. It's the same concept where it has to do in all areas of authority where children are to honor their parents. Uh, a wife is to honor her husband. All are to honor and regard the Lord as authority in their life. Governing authorities, all citizens are to honor them and respect them as those who watch after our life. Does it mean we like everything they do? Absolutely not. Does it mean we agree with everything they do? Absolutely not. But does it mean that they deserve the respect that's given them for the position that they're in? Absolutely. And that's what the Bible teaches. You say, but how can I respect someone that I disagree with in so many areas? You respect the position that God has placed them in. It doesn't mean that you have to blindly be submissive and follow everything they tell you to do. You're to measure everything against the standard that's set forth in the word of God. If you work in a place where you are not being asked to violate biblical principles, where you're not being asked to lie, to cheat, to steal, where you're not being asked to violate those clear commands of God, God says that if you continue to work there, you honor them and you regard them as worthy of respect. We're to be worthy of respect. And you know what? And it's not always easy. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. How many times have you said, my boss is unreasonable. He's unreasonable. She's unreasonable. They're not reasonable. You know, so big deal. Then they go, well, what are we supposed to do with them? Well, you're to honor them. You're to respect them. Because you know what? Not everybody's good and gentle. Not everybody's reasonable. Why should we do it? For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin you are treated harshly and you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why should I honor and regard my non-Christian employer? Because it finds favor with God. Not only does it find a favor with God, and he also goes on to say, so that, the purpose, anytime you're reading the Bible, the, the phrase so that, it's a purpose statement. Why should I do this? So that. Why did God call us from darkness into light? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has done so. So that. So what? Why should I honor and regard my non-Christian employer? So that, here's the purpose, so that the name of God in our doctrine may not be spoken against. It's important to recognize that our place of work is a huge platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. It's huge. My wife and I came to faith in Jesus Christ through a work environment where we saw people who lived out their faith in such a way that it was undeniably true. What they said with their mouth, what they said with their lips, they also demonstrated with their life. It was so attractive. It's light and darkness. It was so attractive that we were compelled to ask, what is it that makes you tick? What is it about you that's so different than anything else you've ever been exposed to? And the answer was simple, Jesus Christ. That's who it is, not what it is, but Jesus Christ living within me. When I came to recognize that I was a sinner, as God said that I am, 
when I repented of sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, when I believed that Jesus died on the cross for me, when I believed that he rose again from the dead and demonstrated he is who he claimed to be, the only Savior of the world, when I received him as my Savior, my life was never the same again. Old things pass away, all things become new, and one of those things was how I conducted myself in my place of business. It's the transformed life. The reason that masters are to be so honored, employers are to be so honored, is so that the name of God and our doctrine might be spoken against. Think about it. Believers' attitudes and behavior in their daily relations at work affect how people perceive God and the Christian faith. You claim to be born again. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to love God. You claim to believe in the things that God teaches you. But I don't see any of it demonstrated in, in your work ethic and how you work for me. So therefore, there must not be much to this God that you talk so much about. Demonstrate it with your work ethic. People who are excellent at what they do demand an audience. I work with professional athletes. I tell them all the time, you be excellent at what you do. Because when you're excellent at what you do, everyone will want to know why you do what you do. And even those who can't stand you as you proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, even those that don't want to hear that, can't do without you because you contribute too much to their operation so that they make money on you, and so therefore they need you, and they have to put up with you always praising the name of Jesus. Think about that. It's beautiful. I mean, it's easy to get rid of a Christian who isn't performing on their business. Hey, not only can we get rid of you because you're a crummy employee, but now we don't have to listen to you talk about Jesus, and so we get rid of both. It's great. You can't get rid of somebody who's excellent at what they do, and it makes you money. You're stuck listening to them. It's great. Why? Because the world loves money. Jesus said you're going to love money or you're going to love me. You can't love both. So the world loves money, we use that to our advantage, and we make people as much money as we can make them so we can tell them about Jesus. Isn't that great? But so many of us have a bad attitude about those we work for. And so therefore, we don't do much to help them be successful because we don't want them to be successful. That is not biblical. That is not what the Word of God teaches. That is wrong. Stop it. If a Christian slave dishonored his master in any way by obedient, disobedience, by acting disrespectfully, by speaking shamefully of his master, the worst consequence would not be the beating he would receive, but the curses he would cause his master to hurl at his, this miserable slave's God, his religion, and the teaching that he embraced. So that is what this new religion teaches its converts. Instead of bringing honor to the true God and the gospel of his high and holy name, as every Christian should be anxious to do, this slave would bring about the very opposite to the devil's delight. So that's what faith in Jesus Christ does for your work ethic. You're so heavenly minded now, you're no earthly good. You feel like you don't have to be respectful of authority, that you don't have to be you know, submissive to, to our, you know, re, you know, our directions and your, and your job responsibility. You feel like you can come and go as you please and, and, you know, and not do the job that you're being asked to do because now you serve you know, a higher master instead of here. You know what? That's nonsense. And it's not what the Word of God teaches. Be excellent at what you do in your business and those who are non-believers will be attracted to the God and Savior that you proclaim. Christians have a divinely commanded responsibility to live out their, their faith in the workplace. Having a proper attitude of submission and respect and performing quality work are necessary pre prerequisites to proclaiming a believable gospel. You know, think about it. Being excellent at what we do causes others to take notice. It is light in a culture where the work ethic has grown dark. You want to stand out in your company? Be excellent at what you do. You be the best employee that your company has, and you know what? You will be light in the darkness. You will cause people to be attracted to you and to your Savior, and then you can give him all the glory and praise. Why do you do what you do? Because Christ lives within me, and I've never been the same. What about those folks now who work for Christian employers? What is our responsibility? Your responsibility for those who work for Christians. How many of you work for Christian employee, employers? Wow, look at that. It's about half and half. That's interesting. You know, what are the responsibilities 
What are your responsibilities as you work for a Christian employer? Here's what he says. You do so all the more. And let those in verse 2 who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but let them serve them all the more. You know, that term jumped out when I was studying this. Let them serve them all the more. If non-Christians recognize the excellence of Christians who work for them, how much more so should we serve Christians who we want to be successful because as they're successful, they are generous towards the kingdom of God and use the resources God has entrusted to them. As Christians are successful, we're to further the gospel, to fund the gospel. As Christian employers are successful, they'll be generous to employees and use the money that God has entrusted to them to win some for for the purpose of Christ because it all comes down to you love God or you love money more. And if you love God more, then God, you'll use the tool that God gave you, which is money, to be a testimony, to be able to lead people to Christ. generous employer, I'll tell you what, and working as a non-Christian for a generous Christian employer, it used to blow us away at how, how generous they were. It wasn't all about them. It wasn't how much more money they can make, but it was like, what, what needs do you have and how can we meet those needs? We've got men who work for us that are not believers, but at the same time, we treat them with respect and dignity and we reach out to them in any way that we can to meet their needs. If they're having problems at home, if they're having a problem with health issues or, or, or their family or whatever, we ask them, what can we do to help meet that need? And it's a testimony of Christ living within us that we don't live just for ourselves. We consider others more important than ourselves. We should all do that. And as Christian employers are more successful to help fund the gospel, that can be more generous with non-Christian employees and Christian employees, then Christian employees who benefit from this can also be more successful and able to help fund the gospel as well. And on and on it goes. All the more. The temptation is for Christians who work for other Christians to disrespect them as their authority because they're equals as brothers in Christ. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Think about it. It wouldn't have been uncommon in this day for a slave to be an elder in the church and have his master as another believer come to the same church and be submissive to his slave in the position that he is a leader of the local church. And yet, at the same time, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for that leader in the local church who is a slave to go outside of the church and back to the work world and then have to be submissive to his master in the area of business relationship. And so we have that constant struggle of wherever we are at the time is who we're placed under the, we're submissive to the authority and the structure that's there. And so there's always authority, there's always structure in every one of our areas of life. Even though in our business, since we're self-employed and, quote, we're the boss, we are submissive to God and his principles. But when I go into other areas, in government, for example, I'm submissive to government authorities. When we come to the church, we're submissive to church leadership. When we go to other areas of life, we're submissive in those areas as well. We're always submissive at some point to someone, and that keeps us accountable before God, and it keeps us humble because God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when we look at this, believers are not to devalue the authority of the Christian employers by treating them as equals on the job. In fact, because they're believers, they should even work all the more so. You know, whereas sometimes our attitude's wrong, we can be excellent at what we do working for non-Christians. There's no excuse to be excellent at what we do for Christian employers and to have a good attitude all at the same time because we know it benefits the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? How simple that is. And I'll give you an illustration I thought of in, in light of all this. Our son, Ryan, works for our company. The temptation would be for him to think, hey, you know, it's, it's you know, our business and in a way that it is. But there's also the reality that people who watch him in the company think he's going to get special treatment or favoritism or whatever. And so their misunderstanding is that somehow or another, he's not going to have to work as hard as everybody else. And the challenge for him is to recognize that, you know what, because you're in that position, sometimes you even have to work harder. But the attitude is you should want to work all the more to see us succeed because at the end of the day, you're going to benefit from that success. Because at the end of the day, if the business is worth anything and I die or something happens, my family, our heirs, and him will benefit from how successful that company becomes. So it develops an owner's mentality that says, you know what, I want to see my dad and our company become so successful because ultimately I'm going to benefit from it. 
for those of us who work for Christian employers, it's the same thing. We want to see our Christian employers become so successful because ultimately, indirectly or directly, we all as God's people benefit from generous Christian employers who are blessed by God with resources that are used to fund the gospel. So why shouldn't we be excited and happy and say, praise God, man, that's great that God has blessed you with the resources that you have. That's awesome. You know, now you have a tremendous responsibility to much is given, much is expected. But at the same time, praise God for the blessings in your business and in your life. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Praise God. Isn't that great? I don't, I don't feel it. I'm not feeling it here. I'm feeling a little hesitancy. But let me show you in Ephesians chapter 6. Yeah, sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. But you know what? You can't go by feelings. It's just truth. Just do it. <laughs> you know, Colossians chapter 3. Let's go there. Colossians 3. Ephesians, Colossians chapter 3. One of my favorite passages that relates to what we're discussing, and it goes like this. Ephesians 3. I mean, Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men with the sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Man, put your heart into it. Just don't go through the motions. Put your heart into it. Be passionate about it because you're, you're serving God. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I like that. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto men. You know, we serve a risen Savior. He watches everything that we do. He takes notes of that. He sees that. And we will be rewarded accordingly. And so he says, you know what, just go hard at it as far as passionate in serving God by serving man. Whether you work for a Christian employee or a employer or a non-Christian employer, whatever you do, Whatever your work is, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And if you can't do it heartily as unto the Lord because you don't like what you do, then find something else to do that you can do heartily as unto the Lord. I, I, you, you hear people all the time complain about how they hate their jobs. Then you know what? Go find something you love to do because when you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Go find something you love to do because when you do, you will never work a day in your life. If you don't like what you do, and the only reason you do it is because you are trapped that you need to make so much money, then you are in danger of falling into loving money instead of loving God. Now, the doctrines of those who love money, because a lot of times you go, well, how do I know if I love money? How do you know someone that does love money? Well, the doctrines of those who love money are laid out in verses 3 through 5, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's saying, okay, basically that's how we identify those who love money. There's a contrast. And the contrast is going to be between what the word of God teaches. Notice what he says. If anyone advocates a different doctrine. So a doctrine of those who love money is that they will disagree or contrast or conflict with sound words those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a doctrine that conforms to godliness. So here's how we know if we're in danger of loving money or if there's someone who advocates loving money over loving God, and that's this. If the word of God gives us clarity on something and they are in opposition to it, they are those who love money. There's a contrast there. And so we need to understand the word of God, the instructions that God gives regarding money. Do you realize that only love is spoken of more in Scripture than finances. It is a huge matter in scripture as it relates to our spiritual barometer. We can say whatever we want about our love of God, but what you will find is that love of money and love of God are in opposition to one another and you can't love both at the same time because one will ask us to do something that the other doesn't want us to do. See, that's why you need to understand and know the Word of God. Read Matthew uh, chapter 6 this week when you have some free time. And look at what Jesus teaches as far as money is concerned. He says, don't store up treasures on earth where rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. He says, store up treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth nor thieves can destroy or steal. And where God rewards us for those things that we do that are eternally in, 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 uh, eternal in nature. He's saying you can't serve both God and money because you'll love one and despise the other because the will of God will say this about money and the love of money will say, you, you don't go that way, you need to go this way. 
Be content? No, 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 no. You, you don't do that. And so there's always opposition that's there. You know, the, Jesus said the worries of the world and what? The deceitfulness of riches came and snatched the word of God out of the hearts of those who heard the gospel. Because the gospel causes people to make a choice. To choose to leave father and mother. To leave possessions. To leave power. To leave material things. To leave those things behind. And totally put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. Leaving and forsaking all else. And yet there's a constant torment or battle that's there. The rich young ruler came to Jesus with a, with a heart that was aching to, and longed to be a, a, a man who understood God and was in a relationship with God. And when Jesus laid out the fact that he was a sinner and he recognized that he wasn't a sinner, he was saying, well, wait a minute, I've done all those commandments that you laid out. He said, well, there's one thing left that you haven't done. And that is leave everything, sell everything, give everything that you have to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus threw that, exposed in that man's heart his love for money over his love for God. It was sin, it was greed, and it was covetousness. And he would not turn from his things, even though it had a hunger to be, to be in fellowship with God. And it says he walked away grieved because he was a man of many possessions. See, Jesus warned that material possessions will keep us even from faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, what does it profit this man? This young man, this young rich ruler who has everything this world has to offer, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or what would a man exchange for his soul? See, we need to recognize and understand the word of God in order to know whether what we're hearing is truth or error, whether it is of God or of the devil and hell itself. The characteristics of those who promote such doctrine are such that they say, hey, you know what? He's conceited. He's conceited. Conceited or proud. They think they have, you know, thinking having a lot of material gives and possessions gives us a higher sense of worth. That somehow or another, the more things that we have, the more money that we make, the nicer cars we drive, the nicer clothes we wear, the bigger house that we have, that somehow or another, we equate that to our worth as a person. So that the love for money is I needed to get all these things so that people will think more of me. Conceitedness and arrogance and pride. And God says, I'm opposed to the proud. Man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things that he has, but in his relationship with God. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2, I have all these things. I had it all. No one, none of us here will ever come close to what Solomon had. And you know, at the end of the day, he said this, without a right relationship with God, you know what? I had nothing. It was chasing after soap bubbles and vanity. He said, who can enjoy life without him? Without a personal relationship with our creator, it was empty. It was nothing. It was vanity. It was soap bubbles. They're conceited and they understand nothing. No, nothing. Because the world we live in thinks the more money I make, the more that I have, the more that I own, the more that I get, the more that I want, then I'll be somebody. You will never be anyone greater than a child of God to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of any better position to be in life than the Son of God, a child of the King himself? Heir to all things, fellow heir, joint heirs with Jesus Christ to all that God owns in the universe. That sounds like a lot to me. That sounds like more than a big house and a nice car. That sounds like anything and everything any man and woman could ever want. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know, the challenge that we learn in some translations, the challenge is in verse 5 that, you know what, that we stay away from such people. You know, stay away from that whole mentality. Stay away from that whole thought process. Stay away from thinking, you know, the more I get, the more I'm going to be happy. Stay away from thinking that the more I have, the more highly people will think of me. Stay away from, you know, all of those things that keep us from being obedient to God. And the dangers of loving money, of the love of money, are found in four things that we'll go through quickly. Number one. He warns us that it ignores true gain. Notice in verse 6, he says, but godliness. See, there are people who teach and believe that the more godly you are, the more you should have material possessions. It's the health and wealth prosperity doctrine that is a lie, lie, lie from the pit of hell. You hear people all the time saying, but God wants his people to be wealthy. 
God wants his people to drive this kind of car, to wear this kind of watch, to wear these kind of clothes, to eat this kind of food. You know what? It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. In fact, it says the opposite, and I will show you in a second. See, the danger of loving money ignores true gain. And you know what true gain is? Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness. You know what godliness means? It's a contrast to what we just learned, it, which is false, but contrast. Godliness is becoming more like God in our conduct, in our life, in our behavior, in our attitude, in our mindset. To become one, people who have true virtue as God does. Godliness accompanied with contentment. Content. Contentment. You know what? Contentment is a gift from God. To those who know God and rightly related to him and walk in obedience with him. We're all looking for contentment and we will not find it if we think that material things will bring it. I'm doing a Bible study with a guy and we're going through the book of Proverbs and I just jotted these down because as we've been going through it, God reminded me of these, these verses, but it says, better is fear the Lord with a little than great treasure with much turmoil. Better is vegetables with love than a fatted ox with hatred. Better is little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Ask all of the people who are being arrested for cooking the books if that one sounds like it's a winner. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a full house of feasting with strife. That's our Thanksgiving Day verse. Better is the poor with integrity than those who are crooked and rich. You know, God's word is so clear and so plain. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Godliness. The psalmist wrote, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of our God. A godly person is motivated by his love of God, not by a love of money. Rockefeller said, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Cornelius Vanderbilt said, the care of millions is too great a load and there is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor described himself as, quote, the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, despite his wealth, remarked, I was happier doing mechanics work. Rockefeller again said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Hmm. The word of God warns us that the danger of loving money, we begin to focus on the temporal and not on the eternal. All that you need to do is read Luke chapter 12, the parable that Jesus told of a man who had this great crop that he had. And he went out and he gathered his crop and he put it in his barns, but his barns were too little. So he said, man, I know what I'll do. And when I went through and studied it, I circled how many times he said, I and my. He consulted with himself. He never consulted with God as to what God's will was for the resources he blessed with him. No, he consulted himself. What am I going to do with all this? What are my plans for this? How am I going to use this for me, 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 me? You know, it sounds like Toby Keith. Uh, and so, so you circle me and my and I and mine. And then, you know, and you realize that he tore down his barns and he added bigger barns and he put more stuff in it. He stacked it all up. And God said, you fool, for today your very soul is required of you. You fool. You presumed upon the future. And you know what? There is no more future for you. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You know, we need to seek God's counsel today. Lord, you have blessed me today. What is it that you want me to do today with these resources? How can I use them to further your kingdom today? How can I use them to meet the needs of those who don't know Christ today? That we can use that as a tool or a testimony so that we can lead them to the Savior. What do you want me to do today? Because you know what? Each day has enough trouble of its own and we don't even know if we're going to have tomorrow. And yet at the same time, we're told to live as if today is our last day and we'll face God and then plan as if we'll live for another hundred years so that there is an inheritance for our children and our grandchildren. There's a balance there, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. And it forces us to constantly be going to God saying, God, I need your help. 
If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and above reproach. And the fact of the matter is this. We all lack wisdom. God, help me. I don't know how to deal with this situation that I'm in. How do I use these resources? I met with a guy yesterday who signed a four-year, $20 million contract. He struggled with, what, what do I do? It's a great responsibility. Now, all of us sitting out there going, oh, I'll give you some ideas. <laughs> you know, you start right off giving it to the guy who meets with you and disciples you. <laughs> you know? It's like, hey, you know what? That's a tremendous responsibility, and people don't understand that it's a tremendous responsibility. That's why, you know, that's why I can read this, you know, in Vanderbilt saying the care of millions is too great of load, and there's no pleasure in it. Everybody and anybody that you know comes out of the word work going, hey, praise God, I heard you signed your contract. By the way, here's what I need. And you've got to struggle with what are needs and greeds and who do you help and do, who don't you help. And when you tell somebody no, then they're rejected by that. You know, and you call yourself a Christian. No, I don't. God does. But what does that have to do with our conversation? So if I don't give you what you want, therefore I'm no longer saved? How ignorant is that of Scripture and the truth that God teaches? And yet at the same time, it causes us to focus on the temporal and not the eternal. You know, money's temporary. It's fleeting. It's, it's, uh, you know, as soon as you put your trust in it, the Bible says it grows wings and flies away. You know, it really does. You know, it obscures the simple things of life. You know, the simple things of life. You know, I, I read this quote by, you know, by Ford. He goes, man, I was happier doing mechanics work. And you know what? I believe him. The simple thing of life, I enjoyed that. Working with my hands and fixing something that was broken, seeing it run. Man, that was beautiful. The simple things of life. See, but it obscures the simple things of life. And the most simplest thing of all is, you know what? Relationships. I want to give you a word picture that God gave me that I have never been able to forget. There's a man that we had become friends with who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was probably in his early 50s. He was dying. I went to the hospital to see him in his last couple of weeks here on this earth. And when I walked into the room, you know what I saw? I saw his wife sitting by the bedside holding his hand. You know what I didn't see? I didn't see his bank account. I didn't see all his money. I didn't see all his toys. I didn't see all his possessions. I didn't see his car. I didn't see a boat. I didn't see a second house. I didn't see his golf clubs. I didn't see anything else. All that I saw was his wife holding his hand. Because you know what? That's all really life's all about, relationships with one another. You know, you never hear of anybody. You never see a hearse hauling a U-Haul. <laughs> Came in with nothing, going out with nothing. And the only thing you're leaving behind are things that your family will fight over. I mean, it's just the way it is. And you know what? And it obscures the simple things of life, the relationships with one another. How foolish it is because the more stuff we have, the more stuff keeps us from spending time together. Jesus said of Mary who sat at his feet, she chose the best. She sat at the feet of Jesus. You know, and I'm thinking this. You know, Martha's in the kitchen getting everything ready and doing all the stuff she was doing. And, there, you know, there's a time and a place for that. But here's what I'm thinking when I read that story. It's not every day God comes to visit you and sits down in your living room. You know what I mean? It's like, you go, hey, you know what? Send out for Chinese. Which would have been really a long trip then. <laughs> but, you know, but send out for Chinese or something. I mean, God is sitting in our living room. I think I'll go visit with him for a while. You know, we miss all that. Stuff gets in the way of all that. We confuse stuff for the important things of life. You know, and then when this man went to his home and it was in hospice care and he would die at his home, I don't recall anybody ever saying, I don't recall him ever saying or anybody else saying, hey, you know what, bring my car in the living room because I want it next to me when I go. But I want my wife here. I want my children here. I want my friends here. I want people closest to me here. You know, he didn't ask for his car. He didn't ask for his money. He didn't ask for his best outfit. He didn't ask for anything but that his family was by his side. Now, I'll tell you what, if those are word pictures that, you know, help, praise God. The last thing he says is this, and we'll close. For we brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out either. We have, and if we have food and covering, with these things we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. Those who want to, it's a calculated, reasoned-out process. This is the goal. Our goal was to make so much money. By, and I've talked to people, my goal is to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Great. Why? Why is that a goal? What do you mean? And they look at you like you're crazy. 
I talked to a friend of mine who wanted to build an apartment complex, and he goes, man, I said, what's your goal? He goes, well, I'm going to build it, and I think I can make a couple hundred thousand doing it. Okay, well, what's, what's your goal? I just told you to make $200,000. No, that's just part of the process. What's the goal? What are you going to then do with the $200,000? What is it that God wants you to do with that $200,000? Well, what's the end of this? The end isn't, I want to make $200,000. The end is, God, what do you want me to do with the $200,000? If you should choose to bless me, that I would make it, and it would all pencil out. But the end is, what, what else am I supposed to do with it? Not just to make it as if that's the goal, the end result. That's not the end result. That's part of the process. What do you want me to do with it? See, those who calculate, reason out, they want to get rich. Notice what happens. They fall into temptation. Just a desire to get rich is going to lead you down a road that you're going to do things that you shouldn't do because the ultimate desire or goal is to make money. It would be like any business who says the ultimate goal and desire is to what? Make so much money per share for the stockholders. Cook the books. We're not meeting our goal, cook the books. My goal is to make so much money in my company. My goal is to make so much personal salary. You know what, we can't do it the way that we're structured. Then lie, then cheat, then steal. I don't care what you do, this is the goal. We interview people in our business, construction industry, heating and air conditioning. We've interviewed service people who have came in for a job and said, the last place that I worked, they said that we have got to average so much per service invoice. And by the end of the day, we need to average $2,000 a day. I said, how in the world do you do that? He goes, it's not easy. He goes, it really bothers me. Because if we go out and it's just a fuse and we change a fuse for a little old lady, you know what, and it's a $100 bill, you know what, we're forced to find something else wrong, so it's five or $600. And if you're the last customer of the day, that fuse is going to cost you $2,000 if you've had a pretty weak and, and, and miserable day. <laughs> and we laugh about that, but that is, th those who love money, that's how they operate. But that is not to be true of us, is it? Because we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we know what the will of God is, that which is good and excellent and perfect. See, temptation and a snare, and there's the snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. A good example is the rich young ruler. He wandered from the faith. He wandered from the truth. He left unredeemed. He left lost before God. He left condemned for his sins because he put too much faith in money and none in the Lord Jesus Christ. And pierced themselves with many a pang. How do we put all this together? Number one, be excellent at work. Do your best as unto the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom you serve. Whether you work for Christians or non-Christians, be excellent at what you do. Start tomorrow. Start today if you work today. Number two, commit to God's truth related especially to finances. Know what the word of God has to say so that you can recognize and understand why when you're confronted with it. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're to be content with these things and our needs will be met, not our greeds and all of our wants and all of our desires. That's what the word of God teaches. Pursue godliness and you'll find contentment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and you know what? They shall be satisfied. Are you discontent? Are you a malcontent? Are you always got that struggle in your life that something's always missing? Pursue righteousness, right living. Pursue God. Pursue doing what's right before God. Pursue the will of God. And you know what he says? That you'll be content. You'll find the contentment you're looking for. Trying to find contentment in material possessions is like drinking seawater. All it does is make you more thirsty until it finally consumes and kills you. Maintain an eternal perspective. Don't be a fool like the man who knocked down his barns to put in more stuff because he couldn't accommodate what he already had and then today his soul was required of him. Enjoy the simple things of life. Enjoy the relationships that God has given you. First and foremost with him through faith in Jesus Christ and then with one another, the simple things of life. You will never ask for any of your possessions to be brought into your hospital room, your hospice room or at your deathbed. You'll want people who mean something to you to be there when you make the transition from this world to the next. And be rich towards God and towards his kingdom, and you'll never go wrong. Father, thank you for this time. We just ask that we can become people who have come, first of all, to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can enter into this relationship that's new and exciting. We're born again from above. 
as we confess our sin before you and we repent from it and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. As children of God, to those who believe in his name, God, you have called us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. To be men and women who love God above all else with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, who don't love money as is warned of here, but love God above everything else. God, teach us to use the material possessions that you've given us in such a way that it furthers your kingdom for your glory. God, as we pursue righteousness and holiness and justice, that we will become people who will be content, being a light in a world of malcontent, discontent, uncontent, non-content, whatever word we want to use, of people who are looking for something in their life and trying to fill it with material and material, uh, material possessions. God, help us to find our satisfaction in you and you alone so that you can use us in such a way that we can draw people to your kingdom by pointing to Jesus Christ as the only Savior and the only hope that you've given men this side of the universe. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you in Christ's excellent name. Amen. And once again, I don't want to be rude, but I need to ask that you would pursue to the back of the room as quickly as you can out into the corridor, out into the breach.